so much. Well, good morning, beautiful people. It's wonderful to see you all, and uh, thanks so much, Nate and Beck, for the invitation to come and spend some time with you. It's, a, it's always a great pleasure and a privilege to be able to share from the Word of God, but I'm particularly grateful for the opportunity to do so today because this is my first time with you. And I uh, obviously know Nate well and Beck, and I've heard a lot of wonderful things about your church, and I've been so encouraged to see the progress that you're making and uh, all the new development around the new space. It's absolutely wonderful. So I, I genuinely feel um, grateful for the opportunity to be here today and to share with you. And as you've probably already kind of figured out from my accent, I'm not originally from around here. So born and raised in Johannesburg, South Africa, and moved here in oh, 2007 with my wife and then 18-month-old son who's just turned 18. So we've been here a while. And uh, usually what happens when people find out for the first time that I'm uh, an ex-South African living in Australia, they inevitably ask me, so who do you support in the rugby, right? Because if you know anything about South Africa, you know like, Rugby is a national religion, right? And so now that I'm an Australian citizen, ex-South African, living in Perth, they want to know, who do you support when the Wallabies play the Springboks? And so the way I kind of explain it is I say, well, South Africa is like my mother, and Australia is like my wife. So South Africa was a land that birthed me and raised me and nurtured me and made me the man I am today, but Australia has won my heart right? Now, now you don't have to stop loving your mother in order to start loving your wife. In fact, I strongly suggest you do both. <laughs> However, if you ever find yourself caught in a conflict between your mother and your wife, always side with your wife. <laughs> and all the wives said, Amen. <laughs> Amen. And all the mothers said, not on your life, Sonny. All right. So that's my roundabout way of saying uh, I, I support the wallabies. So Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. All right, well, I wanted to kick off this morning um, sharing a little story with you about responsibility. And I figured you would enjoy this. It's called Whose Job Is It? So this is a little story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. Once upon a time, there was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about it because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. In the end, everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. <laughs> All right. The question we're asking today is this, whose responsibility is it to care for the planet? Whose responsibility is it to care for the planet? And we're talking today about something that is very close to my heart, as Nate said, something I've been reading about and studying about and speaking on for almost two decades now, but something that doesn't get a lot of airtime in church, and understandably so. And at the heart of it is this question, whose job is it to care for the planet? Now, as you're no doubt well aware, there's a lot of conversation going on right now out there in the world around the possibility of an imminent environmental crisis or perhaps even a present environmental crisis. And every single day we're bombarded with uh, kind of news reports and images of uh, climate change and global warming and a whole range of other kind of environmental catastrophes. And, and sometimes it's a little overwhelming because the sheer volume of information is hard to sift through. And, and you can find yourself wondering, who do we trust? And what is true? And what sources of information are reliable? And are we really facing an environmental crisis? Is the science reliable? And what about those who question it? And, and so it can feel a little overwhelming. And I've noticed over the years 
as this particular subject has come up in the context of Christian conversation, that very often it's kind of met with mixed response. So there are certainly some people who are like wholeheartedly enthusiastic about the idea of uh, you know, us as Christians being at the forefront of a response to this kind of potential environmental crisis. But I would say that the majority of people, it's certainly most people, kind of respond to this idea of Christians involved in environmental issues with some degree of suspicion or at least concern or maybe even just indifference and even sometimes outright resistance. And I've discovered that generally speaking, the concerns that people raise tend to fall into one of four categories. And the first objection is this. People say, well, it's depressing. Like, I mean, honestly, who wants to talk about global warming, climate change, water scarcity, food shortage, deforestation, uh, you know, desertification, pollution? I mean, it's all just so doom and gloom. And so much of the messaging around the, the conversation about environmentalism is framed negatively. And so you can find yourself, again, feeling overwhelmed by the sheer scope and scale of the apparent issue. And you can feel like you're kind of throwing spitballs at a hurricane. You can be left feeling like, what difference does my little contribution actually make, right? So some people are like, I'd rather just put my head in the sand. It's just, it's just, I mean, it's too depressing to think about it, right? The second objection is this. People say, well, okay, if not depressing, then it's demeaning. And by demeaning, I mean there's a concern that if we start allocating like rights and resources that are typically reserved for human beings to non-human entities like plants and animals, are we somehow then diminishing humanity's unique place and purpose in the earth? Right? If we take rights and resources that we normally ascribe to human beings and we give them to plants and to animals, are we somehow reducing humanity's place and purpose and value in the divine scheme of things. Like if I, if I give $10 million to, not that I have $10 million to give, but if, if we collectively gave $10 million to say preserving rainforest in Borneo to save orangutans, well, well that's $10 million that's not going to starving children in Africa or Southeast Asia. So there's an ethical dilemma there, right? So there's a concern, are we diminishing or demeaning the value of humanity? The third objection is this. People say, all right, well, if not depressing and not demeaning, it's certainly dangerous. And by dangerous, they mean that if we as Christians get involved in environmental issues, we might somehow be opening ourselves up to some kind of ungodly or unholy or unrighteous influence. And that is because we typically associate environmentalism with things like radical left-wing politics or New Age philosophy or pagan spirituality. And so when I say the word, you know, environmentalist or environmentalism, most people kind of conjure up images in their mind of these, you know, hippies, um, you know, dancing semi-naked in the forest around a fire, howling at the moon and worshiping the stars and drinking mineral water and eating tree bark, right? Like we have, we have an association, a connotation with environmentalism that's usually connected to you know, radical left-wing politics or, or, or paganism or New Age spirituality. And so there's a concern. Like, if we as Christians get involved in environmental affairs, like, we could get sucked into something ungodly, unholy, unrighteous. And worst-case scenario is we all end up worshiping the earth mother goddess Gaia or something, right? So, so there's a concern there. And then the fourth objection is that it's distracting. So some people say, well, it may not be depressing, demeaning, or dangerous, but it's certainly distracting. And if we give time, energy, and attention to 
trying to address environmental concerns, we're taking time, energy, and attention away from the main game. And for Christians, what is the main game? To preach the gospel and to save souls for eternity. And so, of course, that particular objection assumes a very narrow definition of what the mission of God is in the world. And it assumes a very narrow definition of salvation and redemption and, and, and what the human condition is. But these, nevertheless, are the concerns. And so I'm saying all of that just simply to say to you, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking or feeling any one of those four concerns, if there's any sense of like nervousness or hesitation or, or concern inside of you, I want you to just take a deep breath and just know you're in good company. All right? You are not alone. There are many people who think like that and who feel that burden and who share that concern. And my hope is just simply by the time that we're finished together here today, I will have at least encouraged you to consider the fact that there is not need for concern and that Christians responding to the environmental challenges of the 21st century is, is neither dangerous nor depressing nor demeaning nor distracting. And that in fact we as Christians have a very important role to play in being part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. So when it comes to answering this question, whose responsibility is it to care for the environment, we really don't need to go any further than the Bible. We really don't. And any conversation about Christians and the environment has to be deeply rooted in Scripture, and it has to be based on a solid theological foundation and an understanding of how God wants us to relate to the earth. And so to that end, I want to share with you today four big theological ideas that really serve as the foundation for a Christian understanding of our relationship to the planet. These are four kind of bedrock ideas that sit at the very foundation level of how we as Christians should think about the earth and therefore relate to the earth. Now, of course, today we don't have the time to do like a deep dive expose into all four of them, but I do want to introduce you to them and just identify them and say a little bit about each. All right, so if you are taking notes, feel free to jot these down. So number one, the first big theological idea is this, this concept of earth as creation. Earth is creation. And by that I just simply mean that the earth is not an accident. It's not here by coincidence. It is not here by randomness. Earth is the result of intentional and deliberate design. It's the product of God's handiwork. It is here for divine purpose and with divine reason. And of course this concept, this notion is, is reinforced right throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, but it literally appears in the very first line of the Bible. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 verse 1. And the whole purpose of Genesis 1 verse 1 is to tell us that the cosmos, the universe, the earth that we're a part of in your very existence is not the product of randomness. It's not an accident. You are not here um, by chance. We are here by divine design. It was all dreamed up in the heart and mind of God before it became a reality. And therefore, the universe is not hurtling towards oblivion, uh, kind of aimlessly and purposelessly. Um, all of creation has intention and design and purpose and meaning, and that includes your life, right? So, of course, there are all sorts of fascinating debates about how God created and when God created. You know, is the earth 6,000 years old or is it 4.5 billion years old? And did God create in a moment of time by speaking literally? Or did God use biological and geological processes to create and to form over a very long period of time and all of those conversations are fascinating they're interesting discussions and debates but the whole point of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is not to answer those questions of 
when did God create and how did God create. The whole purpose of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is to tell us that God created and why God created. That there is a designer, there is a mind behind it all, and that there is purpose and there is meaning and there is intention behind it. And so this idea of earth as creation sits at the very base of a kind of Christian view of, of creation. And of course, as such, you know, we emphasize that, that the creator is distinct from the creation, right? God is over and above his creation. Yes, he loves his creation. He interacts with his creation. He, he ultimately sustains it and will one day redeem it. But he is apart from it, right? Creation is not an extension of the essence or the nature of God. And of course, if you know anything about Eastern philosophy and Eastern worldview, that's where we kind of fundamentally differ. Because in many Eastern religions, anything visible is believed to just be uh, an extension of the character and the essence of God. And that's why in many Eastern religions, you can worship the sun or worship a cow or worship a blade of grass or worship a mountain because all of those natural things are seen to be visible manifestations of the essence of God, but not so in a Christian worldview. In a Christian worldview, the Creator is distinct from the creation, and the creation is dependent upon the Creator. That's why we worship the Creator. We don't worship the creation, right? So it's a very important part of the Christian worldview. So that's the first big kind of theological idea. Earth as creation, the deliberate, intentional handiwork of God. All right, then number two, the second big kind of theological idea that the Scriptures encourage us to embrace uh, when it comes to shaping our understanding of our relationship to earth, is this idea of creation as revelation. Creation as revelation. And by this we simply mean that God has revealed something about himself through the very things he has made. And again, this idea is kind of permeated throughout the pages of Scripture, but it's explicitly stated by Paul the Apostle in Romans 1 verse 20, when he says, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. And through everything God has made, they can clearly see His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Wow, right? What Paul is saying there is, hey, not only is it possible to know the existence of the Creator by observing the creation, you can actually tell what kind of a Creator He is. There is something about His personality, His nature, His character, His essence that is revealed through the things He has made. Uh, the, the, the Christian philosopher and uh, apologist C.S. Lewis put it beautifully. He said, imagine you were walking down a beach one day and early in the morning, sun has just risen and the sand is beautifully smooth. And as you're walking along the beach, you come across this ornate sandcastle, like a big, large, decorative, elaborate sandcastle. He said, you would be a fool if you looked at that sandcastle and you said to yourself, wow, look what the tide brought in overnight. Look what the wind and the waves created while we were sleeping. He said, nobody would say that. You would look at the sandcastle, you would see the intention and the design and the symmetry and the order, and you would conclude somebody built this. There was a mind behind the, the intention. And so he says it's the same with creation. When you stop to quite literally smell the roses, <laughs> when you take a moment to allow your feet to sink into the sand and you scrunch your toes up and you feel the texture of the sand between your toes, when you lie in an open field and you stare up at the stars at night, or you float in the ocean, everything about that experience communicates something about the nature of God. And there is great value in stopping and asking the question, what is all of this telling me about God? When I consider the vastness of the macrocosm, when I consider the intricacy of the microcosm, when I consider the fine-tuning in the universe, the perfect balance of all the elements to make life on our planet possible, 
When I consider that if our planet was 50 kilometers closer to the sun, we would all boil, bake, fry, and roast simultaneously. And if we were 50 kilometers further from the sun, we would all freeze instantly. The fine-tuning, what scientists call the Goldilocks effect. When you consider all of that, all of that says something about God. It tells us that God is an artist. When you consider that there are no two fingerprints that are the same, no two eye patterns, no two voice patterns that are identical. It says God is a God of infinite creativity. When you consider the fine-tuning of the universe, God is an engineer. God is an architect. When you consider that the dominant colors in creation are blue and green, and we know from psychology that blue and green are colors that calm us, that communicate peace. God created a world that communicates calm and peace. If you consider the pace of nature and the stillness of nature, the world before words, it's a world in which God intentionally created places of peace and rest, right? So there's something about creation that reveals God. And Wendell Berry, the great um, Christian uh, naturalist, said that God has written two books, a book of words and a book of works. The book of words we call the Bible. The book of works is called the world. And if we fail to read either for ignorance or for laziness, we miss out on something of the fundamental revelation of God. And so whenever we lose part of creation, we lose something of God's self-disclosure, something of God's self-communication. So creation is revelation. And that general revelation is so profound and so clear and so important that notice Paul says that when people stand before God on the day of judgment, nobody will be able to say, God, we did not know you were there. That is how important, how profound, and how clear and compelling the revelation of creation is. All right, so that's number two. Then number three, the third big kind of uh, theological idea that sits at the foundation of a Christian kind of concept of nature is this idea of earth as God's possession. Earth as God's possession. And in Deuteronomy 10 verse 14, we, we, we hear... Um, you know, the, the, the prophet speaking, to the Lord your God, right, belong the heavens, the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. And of course, this statement is, again, replicated in places like Exodus and in the Psalms and in, in Job and Isaiah, this idea that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? Bad news for BHP Bulletin and Rio Tinto. The earth is not yours. <laughs> and the earth does not belong to any nation state, and it does not belong to any federal government, and it does not belong to any ethnic group. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means God has ownership right over the earth. We simply have stewardship responsibility. If God has the right to claim ownership because he created it and, and sustains it and will one day redeem it, then we simply have stewardship. And the difference between those who have rights, uh, those who have ownership and those who have stewardship is owners have rights and stewards have responsibilities. Right? And, and I can explain it to you this way. It's like imagine for a moment you had a friend. Well, I'm sure you have lots of friends. But imagine you had a friend who had a Ferrari. And your friend came up to you one day and said, I'm traveling to Europe for eight weeks. Would you take care of my Ferrari for me? And handed you the keys. I'm pretty sure, yeah, number one, that'd be a great friend. And if you do have a friend like that, Pastor Nate would like to meet them too. So please make an introduction, right? I'm 100% certain that you would be so careful with that Ferrari, right? You will not take it out into the suburbs at night to go do donuts and burnouts and wheel spins and, and so forth, right? When you go to the shopping center, you're going to go park on the other side of the shopping center where nobody else is parking. So nobody bangs it with their door or bumps it with their trolley. 
you're certainly not going to leave your like empty McDonald's packets on the back seat or on the floor, right? And when that friend comes back from Europe, you're going to hand back that car full of fuel and totally clean. And the reason you're going to do that is because you recognize that's not your Ferrari. You're just caring for it, for someone else. And you recognize its intrinsic value. You understand how valuable it is. And so when that friend comes back from, from holiday, you hand back the keys. And then you go back to driving your 1992 Holden Barina with 350,000 kilometers on the clock, right? Which does have McDonald's packets on the back for and does have bumps in the side and probably does have a few wheel spins on its, uh, on its record as well. Because you own that Barina and you recognize it's probably not that valuable anymore. And so when it comes to the planet, part of the, the, the challenge we have as human beings is that we have treated the planet like that 1992 Holden Barina rather than like our friend's Ferrari. In other words, we fail to recognize the earth is not ours to do with as we please. The earth belongs to God and everything in it. He has ownership rights. We have stewardship responsibilities. And that brings me to the fourth big theological idea that underpins our relationship to the earth. And it's this idea of earth as our habitation. Earth is our habitation. In other words, earth is our home, right? It's the only home we've ever had, and it's the only home we ever will have. I know, I know um, you know, Elon Musk wants to take us all to Mars, but earth is our home. And the biblical vision, right, of new creation at the end of Revelation is for a new heavens and a new earth, a renewed, reformed, refashioned, remade, redeemed earth. In other words, your eternal destiny is not to spend some disembodied existence in the sweet by and by in what is essentially an eternal worship service in heaven. That's not the biblical vision of your eternal destiny. Our eternal destiny is a physical, corporeal, visible, tangible, literal existence on a new heaven and a new earth. And that's the biblical vision. So earth has always been our home and it always will be our home. And uh, this kind of relationship that we have to the planet is beautifully expressed in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 in what we call the cultural mandate when God said to Adam and Eve um, I'm putting you into the garden and I'm mandating you to work it and to care for it to rule over it but to steward it and to manage it yes be productive with it use it as a resource it's supposed to sustain your existence but do so in a wise loving responsible and sustainable way and as the only creatures on the planet who bear the image of God you and I have a unique relationship to the planet and a unique responsibility for the planet right now now listen closely because what I'm about to say is probably one of the most important things you're going to hear I have on many occasions heard people say uh, Tim I, I don't care about birds and bees and flowers and trees. And I don't care about turtles and I don't care about dolphins. I care about people because God cares about people. And I care about what God cares about. And if God cares about people, then I care about people too, right? I've heard that preached. I've heard that said from platforms. I've heard that said in informal conversation. I care about what God cares about and God cares about people, so I don't care about anything else. But here's what I think is wrong with that way of thinking. Number one, I think it is fundamentally flawed to assume that God only cares about people. Because I think both Old and New Testament attest to the fact that God cares about the entirety of His creation. The psalmist said His compassion is over all He has made. Jesus said, if a single sparrow falls to the ground, your Heavenly Father knows about it. 
Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus went to the cross and died and rose again for the redemption of the entire cosmos. Not just for human beings. There's a cosmological dimension to the redemptive work of God in the world. So to say that God does not care about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees is just simply not faithful to the revelation of Scripture in both Old and New Testament. That means that human beings have a special place in the heart of God, but not an exclusive place. God cares about it all, right? But secondly, the problem I have with that way of thinking that assumes that God does not care about the created order is that it fails to recognize an almost blindingly obvious truth. And that is simply that human beings do not live in a vacuum. Human beings live on planet Earth. And we live in this tiny sliver of habitable space called the biosphere, which is relatively speaking about as thick as a layer of varnish on a cricket ball. So it's made up of the Earth's near-surface crust, a thin layer of the Earth's near-surface crust, and a thin layer of the Earth's near-surface atmosphere. It's called the biosphere. And all known life in the universe exists within the biosphere. Now, that's not to say that there might not be other life out there, but all known life in the universe exists within the biosphere. And not only depends on the biosphere for quality of life, but for life itself. So that means if you genuinely care about people, you are going to care about the environment in which people live and on which people depend for their very existence. You can't tell me you care about people, but you don't care about the quality of air that people need to breathe in order to live. You can't tell me you care about people, but that you don't care about the quality of water that people need to drink in order to survive. You can't say you care about people, but then don't care about the quality of soil that they need to till in order to sustain their subsistence living. If you genuinely love people and you genuinely care about people, then you are going to care about the environment in which they live and on which they depend. And part of the challenge for you and me living in this beautiful first world western city of Perth is that we can walk down the road and go to Woolies and go get fresh fruit and vegetables right off the shelf. We can turn on our taps and get fresh drinking water 24-7. We can walk outside and breathe the fresh, clean ocean air. So our dependency on the environment is not as accentuated for us as it is for people in the developing world. But you jump on a plane, fly to anywhere in Central Africa or Southeast Asia, go out into rural areas or into places where people are living in deep poverty, and you will see environmental dependency accentuated. Right? For, for the poorest of the poor and for the, those who are marginalized and are disadvantaged in any way, their quality of life and even life itself is inextricably linked to the quality of the environment. So if you genuinely love people, you are going to care about the environment on which they depend. And so in a lot of ways, this, this mandate to care for creation can be traced all the way back to the great commandment given to us by Jesus, to love our neighbors as ourselves. At the end of the day, caring for creation is nothing less than an act of obedience to the command given to us by Jesus to love our neighbors as ourselves. When Jesus was questioned about what is the greatest command of all, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Only loving our neighbors requires us to extend our definition of neighbor and to recognize that your neighbor is not just a person who lives down the street but the person who lives downhill and the person who lives downstream and the person who lives downwind and the person who lives down time 
In other words, the generations who will inherit the planet from us. And so caring for creation in a faithful, wise, responsible, loving way is nothing less than an act of love. Love for God in the sense that it's obedience to the cultural mandate and love for neighbor in the sense that it's a recognition our neighbors depend on that environment for quality of life and for life itself. And ultimately, if we are motivated by that love, love for God expressed in our obedience to the cultural mandate and love for neighbor, then we are going to fulfill the mandate to be good humans. And, and this, is, this is the point, right? If, if caring for creation is a human vocation, then it automatically becomes a Christian vocation. Because even though not every human is a Christian, every Christian is a human. At least the vast majority of them, right? There have been some Christians that I've met that I thought, what planet are you from, right? I'm sure you know a few of them too. But the point is, if, if caring for creation and stewarding creation in a wise, responsible, loving, and sustainable way is a human vocation, which it is on the basis of the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 and 2, then it automatically becomes a Christian vocation. And as Christians, we should be the best example of what it is to be human, of what it is to live under the lordship of our sovereign King Jesus and to live out in faithful obedience to his command, to love God with all that we are and all that we have, including our environment, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so at the end of the day, friends, caring for creation is simply this act of obedience. An act of obedience to the command given by Jesus to love our neighbors. And today we're obviously not talking in any significant detail about climate change or global warming or the nature of the environmental challenge. And there's much we could say about that. I just want to say one thing in relation to that today. In, in response to this question, is the planet genuinely facing a significant environmental crisis? I think what we need to do is, for the time being, let's take global warming and climate change off the table. I know for many people that's the area of concern. That's where the contention is. That's where the debate is. That's where the, the kind of uh, controversy is. Global warming and climate change, are they real phenomenon? Are humans genuinely contributing in some way? Let's, for the sake of our conversation this morning, just take that right off the table. I'm not saying it's a non-issue, but I'm just saying let's, for the sake of this conversation, assume it's a non-issue. We would nevertheless still have to acknowledge that we are confronted with at least a dozen very serious, very present environmental concerns that are clearly anthropogenic in nature. In other words, they have their origin in human activity. I'm talking there about things like pollution, resource depletion, desertification, deforestation, critical ecological imbalance. All of these things are inextricably linked to human behavior. Things like our prolific levels of consumption. And therefore, all of them require human solutions. So even if you are a climate skeptic, if you're the kind of person who says, Tim, I'm not convinced that global warming is a real issue. I'm not convinced that climate change is a present threat. Okay, let's take it off the table right now. But even if that's the case, we still have to acknowledge we are facing an environmental challenge in the 21st century that is multifaceted and anthropogenic. In other words, it's complex, it's multi-sided, and it's certainly rooted in human behavior and therefore requires a human response. So 
There is so much we could potentially say about how we could personally and, and practically and collectively respond and the types of things we could do and the things we could change in order to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. We're intentionally not talking about those things today because those are things that you can go and explore in your own time, in your own way. You can do it as a church. You can do it as a small group. You can do it as an individual. There are so many wonderful sources out there with really practical and personal ways in which all of us can respond to being part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. The primary purpose for us today is to establish that this is first and foremost a theological issue. And this is a spiritual issue. Long before it becomes a political issue or a social issue or an economic issue, this is fundamentally a theological and a spiritual issue. And so to that end, I want to finish with this quote from a guy by the name of Gus Speth. And Gus Speth is a very well-respected, high-profile American lawyer and environmental advocate. And he summed it up beautifully. This is what Gus said. He said, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. And I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. But I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. Friends, that is so true. And that is why I believe as followers of Jesus and representatives of the kingdom of God, we have such a vital role to play in leading the way, in modeling an example of what it means to be truly human and what it means to be faithful, responsible, wise, and loving stewards of all that God has entrusted to us, including the environment. So whose responsibility is it to care for creation? The answer is it's yours <laughs> and it's mine. It's all of ours. And it's high time, I think, that we as followers of Jesus rose to the challenge and rather than ignore the issues or bury our heads in the sand, that we lead the way and become part of the solution so that our world knows our God is good and our God is great and our God is gracious. So to that end, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. And we're going to take a moment of pray as we kind of wrap up our time together. And I want to invite you in this moment just to open your heart to God and to what it is the Holy Spirit might have been prompting in your heart today, what it is He might have been saying to you, and just allow Him in that wonderful way that He and He alone can do to just whisper to your heart words of revelation and insight and instruction and truth. What is God saying to you today? Where is He challenging you? Where is He shining the searchlight of His truth into your heart? And what is it that He might be asking of you? But Father, we thank You today for the opportunity to be together again. We thank You for the gift of this time. And thank you, Father, for this space. Thank you for the sacredness of this moment. And we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, for the revelation of yourself to us in the scriptures. We, we recognize it is a, a revelation of your will and of your way. And we're so grateful for the way that you, by your Holy Spirit, have made yourself known to us. And we pray, God, that uh, you would help us to see what we need to see and to hear what we need to hear. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the illuminating work that you do in our hearts and for the light and life that you bring to us. And I pray that you would help each and every one of us to be faithful stewards of all that you've entrusted to our hands, including this wonderful place that we get to call home, called earth. Help us to live in a way that is responsible and wise and responsive and sensitive and faithful and diligent in stewarding it and in passing it on to the generations who will inherit it from us. Help us to live as a, as a good example, Father, of what it means to be truly human 
um, as we represent Jesus in this world. So we thank you for this time. Thank you for um, our fellowship. I pray, God, as we share coffee and tea and a meal together, that you would just simply uh, bless that time, help us to be aware of your presence as we work through the truth that we've heard today. And we just thank you so much for your presence in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.